to What Happens Next, I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Last week, we started to look at the demands of hustle culture and how burnout has become a norm for most people across all walks of life. But is this drive to achieve all bad? Can a better understanding of how to recharge help us keep working on the things that matter to us? And what can each of us do to keep burnout at bay? I'd like to welcome back comedian and broadcaster Michelle Laurie, philosopher Jakob Howie, Associate Professor of Management and Accounting Carly Moulang, and behavioural psychologist Joshua Wiley. Welcome to part two of Hustle Culture on What Happens Next. Well, hustle culture for me is a, an exciting, a, a more exciting place. Not everyone finds the idea of hustle culture daunting. For some people, it actually suits their personality, lifestyle and attitude. Michelle Laurie is a prime example. Because to me it's about creativity and it's about the, the excitement that comes from dreaming up a hustle. <laughs> it's my favourite thing. And I remember sitting under a tree in a friend's backyard one day about six months ago and he is another hustler and um, the two of us... And we both we both use that term, obviously, you know, positively, and we're aware that some others don't. But and and, and I said to him, "What else can we do to make money?" <laughs> and we both laughed like that, and we both just we were so happy, and and we both said, "Isn't this fun? This what fun? This is so fun! This is a fun life." And so to me, that's the difference. The difference is the the freedom, the excitement, the. Uh, Mm. Yeah, that's the difference to me. Busyness is just denotes kind of exhaustion, running around and probably for other people. But hustle, that's exciting. That's fun. That's what's next, what's around the next corner. And that's up to me. That's all up to me and my creativity and my imagination and my energy. And that's exciting. I love that. And I love your story. I love the symbolism of you sitting <laughs> under a tree. Yes, I never thought of that. Back, yeah, because for listeners that don't know, Michelle is a very committed and accomplished, I don't know if that's the right word, accomplished Buddhist. Um, <laughs> right. And so I love the symbolism of you sitting under a tree <laughs> yeah. in a backyard, in a backyard with a friend. And then your enlightenment was, how do we make more money? <laughs> how, do we, how do we make money? Because we'll we, we, we already had a few hustles on the go. That was the fun bit. And it was like, oh, what else? It's not like we had nothing doing, but it was just like, oh, what else? We're just in a creative vibe. And the other great thing about that tree that I think what was inspiring me was that I was in the backyard of his mum's house. It was the house that he had grown up in. It was a house that he and his brothers had played cricket. They'd played cricket under that tree as children. Hmm. This is a man who was now in his early 50s. And that's what was inspiring me. And he was telling me stories about hitting the cricket ball through the wind, that window right there. And his nan was sitting under the window and these great, beautiful stories. And this boy who'd hit the ball was running. And then when he realised it went through the window, he just kept running all the way up the driveway and ran all the way home. And, this <laughs> great, and so there was something so inspiring and great about where we were sitting, you know. It was a beautiful day and, yeah. So that's hustle culture. It's something about the freedom of childhood and it never wears off. You've got to be a certain kind of childish idiot, I think, to enjoy it. <laughs> so you don't find, it sounds like you would say busyness and our obsession with busyness can be oppressive and misery inducing, but hustle culture is exciting 
and liberating and that's what you would see as a difference. I see in my life certainly, yes, those are the differences. When I think about the times when I've been described myself as being busy, uh, yes, I've been unhappy about it. Mm. It's been running from one thing to another that have been about things that have kept me away from my hustles, I think. That's... <laughs> like, oh, I'm grumpy because I'm busy because I yeah. want to get back to my hustles. Yes. passion. Pro- <laughs> so you see hustle as passion projects. I do. Yeah, right. even though, you know, most of the time, certainly now I've deliberately configured my life so that it's now really all about my hustles. So yeah. you've written a book on being busy. What does Buddhism have to say about busyness? Well, Buddhism says that everything is is about your attitude to it. And so I suppose everything I've been saying is about that, isn't it? It's about my attitude toward work that I create is that it's fun. So when I create my own work, my attitude is an attitude of excitement and uh, of that that ownership and that um, yeah that feeling of being in con- control and in charge of my own life and my own desti- destiny brings out an attitude of fun in me. Mm. Whereas when I'm working for other people, I I struggle to find that attitude to to claim that attitude of fun and excitement. Do you think people need to be anchored within the tradition of Buddhism or you know? Um... Yoga comes from a Hinduism. Do you think people need to be anchored within those traditions to then get the benefit from what these spiritual religious traditions teach us about how to manage some of these stressful uh, issues in life? No, I, I don't think so. I think whatever works, really, whatever works for people and His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the first person to say, listen, whatever works, works. And he advises people against adopting Buddhism, really, uh, you know, and certainly as a religion, he always says, listen, you know, work your own religion. They all teach the same thing, really. Today's technology has made it easier to have a side hustle, says philosopher Jakob Howie, director of the Monash University Centre for Contemplative Studies. How do you define hustle culture? Well, as something positive, first up. It is positive. Yeah, I like I like hustling in, in the sense of being busy, um, having things to do. But then when you reflect about it, it becomes something negative, of course, if you hustle for hustle's sake. If you hustle to signal that you're busy, mm. it becomes counterproductive. But I don't like being bored myself. Right. I remember the day before, email and internet and so on, I was sitting in my little one-bedroom flat as a student. I wanted to hustle and I didn't have any uh, any way of hustling because it was just too boring. I had to organise people physically. I had to write letters and receive answers and so on. I don't have to do that anymore. Now I can hustle when I want to hustle. Sometimes we portray it as, um, in, in fairly superficial ways, as it's, it's something in the, in the spirit of the times, it's, uh, it's something about us and our psychology, but it's also something about life being more and more difficult. So if you're a young person and you're caught up in the gig economy, you've got to hustle. 
because that one job might not last and the pay might change or something better might come up or you also have to do that startup and also take care of your band and all those kinds of things. You've got to hustle. And that's a structural thing, I think. And if we overlook that um, aspect of hustle culture, it can be easy to um, just kind of blame people for hustling you know, in a fairly superficial way. Is hustle culture the way we see it manifest in Western societies at the moment? Is it something new? Or was did we have this kind of flavour of hustle culture 200 years ago in London? <laughs> it was probably a different kind of hustling you did back then. Um, and maybe it was not so important to appear to be hustling. Mm. So you think maybe one of the distinctive elements of today's hustle culture is the performativity of it? Yeah. that's the, At least when I think about the negative aspects of, of hustling, um, you know, when people say, oh, I was part of the hustle and bustle, that's a positive thing. I was, yeah. I was part of life. I was participating. So that's fine. Mm. But when you have to appear to be part of the hustle and bustle, then that seems like a more modern thing, but... The more I think about it, so yeah, going back in time, probably there was an element of also being seen to be busy mm. back then. So I'm, I'm not sure. Often we have this kind of myopic view of the present. Things now are different than they were, but actually things yeah. never change. Yeah. Everyone I talk to kind of say that the young generation, they hustle. You know, they're part of the hustle cottons because they've got, they're on their phones all the time. So on. That's probably not super different from the way it was in the past. There was just different ways of, of being busy and um, different ways of negotiating, negotiating the, the kind of social interactions that you have to engage in as a young person. I always, I'm always a bit suspicious when the younger generation is kind of blamed for being different than they used to be. And by different, we always mean worse. Yes. <laughs> They're never superior yes. to us. I, I think... The kind of younger generation now, and it sounds a bit crusty when I talk about the younger generation, but I'm super impressed. And I'm not worried about, yeah, you know, I've got teenage sons, my 17-year-old being on, on Messenger with his friends and so on, um, constantly on. But I'm sure they are developing a way of negotiating that. I'm sure they have a, a very fine-tuned language to communicate when they're open for business, when they're not open for business, when they're just checking in, you know, how you delay, how you phrase things on on, on Messenger or whatever other Snapchat or whatever it might be. Mm. Yeah, I think that they're super impressive in terms of the way they negotiate all that social stuff. It can be stressful, of course, and, you know, some young people suffer. But this idea that they're all suffering because they're busy on their phones all the time, I don't, I don't buy that. What do you think about the value of things to counteract this constant need for busyness, mindfulness? Mm. Is there value in that? There's, I mean, there's clearly a huge surge in interest in mindfulness and has been for the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Uh, and it's becoming more and more industrialised and commodified. Right. Yeah. You, know, you can easily get apps for your phone where you can schedule in your your mindfulness. And there's lots of big reviews and evidence that suggests that at least, you know, in general terms, it's quite beneficial to engage in some kind of mindfulness meditation. But you also have to be suspicious about it. Uh, if if 
mindfulness or some kind of panacea against hustle mm. culture, we would have figured out a way of doing it in a more natural way if it was just naturally beneficial. And maybe mindfulness is only beneficial when you allow it to resonate with a certain kind of cultural scaffolding that tells you what to do now that you've been mindful for mm. a little moment or you've trained your mindfulness muscle. You're really good at, at, at doing that kind of attentional shifting or non-judgmental self-regulating thing that you do when you meditate. But, but how is that going to make your life better if it's, if it's being amputated? Yeah, it's amputated. That's a good word for it from a set of norms and cultures and values. What do we do with that then in, in you know, a Western country like Australia where religion's not pr- particularly dominant in our mm. society? Mm. How is there a way to, if meditation or mindfulness has been amputated from its original home, can we graft it here in a meaningful way? That's an interesting question. It's something that we want to work on, certainly, um, also in our, in our academic business, uh, how to solve that, that problem. And I think it requires a bit of a cultural shift probably. So big, big corporations now routinely try to tick a box in terms of their staff kind of engagement by saying, here's a, a free mindfulness course that you can do. Yeah, lunchtime. Lunchtime. <laughs> hurry, hurry. Don't eat your lunch. Come and, <laughs> and do your mindfulness. <laughs> right. And I think that in order to over that, – that's the kind of amputation that you talked about. And in order to overcome that, it has to be more of a contract between the staff and the organization where both parties come to uh, this kind of event with something, with some resource, where the organization says, I'm going to offer this, you know, put, put things in place so you can do the mindfulness over lunchtime and so on. But I'm going to uphold mind of the bargain. I'm not just going to have a mm-hmm. charter of values and norms. I'm going to enact those in such a way that your mindfulness is supported so you don't come back to your office and the emails have just grown even more and you have to answer them. Yeah. And I think it's that cultural shift that has to happen where mindfulness and hustle and all those things are seen in a context where everyone comes to the party with something. If you're not in a position to affect change over your entire organisation, there are smaller practices that you can build into your day, says Carly Mulang, an associate professor in the Monash University Business School. What I would suggest is to just start really small. And I've talked a little bit before about micro steps. And there's a really good book by BJ Fogg called Tiny Habits. And this is also a philosophy that's sort of been taken up by Ariana Huffington as well. And the magic of micro steps and micro practices is that they're really small. So you need to sort of figure out what am I trying to achieve and what do I want? And I guess to give you an example from my case, in COVID, I knew that I had to be really careful with my mental health. I knew that this is something that I really needed to protect but I had no time, right? I had no no time to devote half an hour to meditating or anything like that. So I had to develop a way to incorporate this into my life, which required very little time, 
very little cognitive effort. And I did that by creating like a mindfulness um, micro toolbox. Mm -hmm. And so to just give you an example of one thing that I did to implement more um, mindfulness is that I had decided to anchor it to an activity I did all the time. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, it was washing hands. I was washing my hands God knows how many times a day. And I noticed that when I was washing my hands, I was worrying or I was thinking about something else. And so I attached my practice to that one task. And every time I washed my hands, I stopped, I took a deep breath, I noticed my breathing, I noticed the water, I noticed Mm. the soap, the feel of my hands and that was my way of incorporating mindfulness into my day 20 times a day Mm. and that has an effect on your well-being at the end of the day. And so for me I think um, that it's – a matter of deciding what you want to do and then how are you going to implement that in a practical way and a way that also doesn't, you know, it, it can't take up a lot of your time. Mm. And I also imagine that it's important that, like you said, we need to do these things for ourselves, these little manageable things for ourselves, but we also need to have workplaces that are not putting unrealistic expectations on us. Mm-hmm. Is there a way we can have those conversations with our workplace that you would yeah. recommend? I think that that's really hard because there have been times when I myself have been overwhelmed with all of the work that I have to do and the problem is there's no one else there to pick it up for you. So I think it's really important for me to differentiate between what pressure I've put on myself Mm. and what is a realistic pressure for my workplace. And so often I find that the pressure isn't an actual deadline. It's me thinking I, I need to get all these things done in a day. But now I stop and I reflect and I'm more conscious of what can actually realistically be done. Mm. And so I think that a bit of that is determining what is a real pressure with a real deadline and what is it that I'm lumping onto myself (laughs) on top of that. Because I think when you go to a workplace, it's much more difficult because they're also now dealing with limited resources. And so, yeah, I think that differentiation about what's coming from me, what's coming from them, and trying to prioritise what's most important. What can you do if you're worried that you're headed for burnout? Dr Joshua Wiley is a Senior Research Fellow at Monash University's Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health. Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things I would say is sort of to check in with yourself around, uh, around your health and well-being. So to be mindful of your level of stress, to be mindful of your mental health. And there's not a lot of evidence here, but I am very much a fan of some of the quantified self and some of the biomarkers we can pick up on ourselves to also keep track of our physiological health. And for example, now there's commercial uh, chest straps that you can use to measure heart rate variability, which is gives you an indicator of kind of physiological stress a little bit. Mm. It's not perfect, but it's sort of one of these non-invasive, low-cost signals, and you can sort of just pick that up. So I think if you you have some of these things, I'd be mindful of sort of of your stress, of your mental health, 
um, of your physiological health to the extent that you can. And if you become aware of that, and then you are aware that these are sort of not not where you want them to be, or not uh, not at optimal levels, if I'd say. You know, it's normal to have a little bit of stress, but if you find that you're under sort of high stress, then really thinking about where to make some changes there, and that probably involves giving something up. Mm-hmm. But I like to think of it from that from that perspective. So rather than just sort of thinking and saying, okay, you just got to cut some things out of your life, which might feel very hard to let something go and might feel very hard to not sort of be in that that hamster wheel, if you will, right? Uh, instead, think about it as prioritizing something else. So it's not sort of, you're not just giving something up, you're approaching something else. And what you're approaching is a lower stress, happier, healthier you. And then seeing how to make that happen. Mm. And how that's going to happen will look really different for different people because it would be very individual what's most difficult for you, what's most stressful, what is it that's sort of keeping you in that, what's keeping you from being able to have that rest time, whether that's sleep or whether that's just sort of quiet time that actually brings down your, you know, kind of psychologically and physiologically that that stress and that sort of always on that gives you that time to just sort of shut down. Um, but for different people, that might be really different. Some people might be running and that's actually very relaxing for them. And so that's a part that they keep. But they might have something else, you know, that they want to, I don't know, they're always trying to watch movies or something that are enriching, right? And that they maybe say, okay, well, that's actually just stressful. And it it means every night I get back from my job and I'm not enjoying this and I can't wind down. Instead, I'm feeling like I've I've got to watch or read something deep. And that's what they give up. And maybe for someone else, reading that sort of deep thing actually kind of calms them from their job, so they want to keep that on. So I think it will look really different for different people. But if you actually kind of are aware of yourself and check in with yourself and put your stress levels and keeping that in check as a goal, as sort of a, as long as your needs are met, then it is also very important to me to keep this managed. I think that can help guide other decisions. At one time or another, all of us have wished our brains would just give it a rest. Give us a moment to take a breath and recharge our batteries. As Michelle Laurie says, it's all about attitude. For me, there was a, just a really clear moment in my early 40s. As I said, when I had to think about my life, recalibrating what am I doing and why am I doing it? Why am I working this hard? There was a purpose to it some years before. What is the purpose now, though? Mm. Uh, You know, why am I still ambitious for these reasons? No. Am I still trying to achieve the goals that I was 10 years ago? No. Uh, You know, is it about the money? No. So what? but it is taking away from my children. I'm really tired now because I'm older. There's, it's taking away all these things that it wasn't before. So really sitting with, I really sat with myself and thought, okay, life has changed, but I haven't changed with it. I haven't changed my mindset about what I want out of life. I'm still working to these old, this old list that I drew up many years ago. What I want now is more time. I need more rest. Uh mm. What do I want out of life? I want more hustle. I want more fun. You know, I want to do more things that I want to do now in every day. I want to wake up and have more fun, have more rest, have more time at home with the kids and the pets. That's what I want. I want less travel. I want, you know, draw up the list. That helped. I want more time with friends. 
I wasn't seeing any friends like you guys. I didn't have time to have breakfasts with friends, you know, all that. And things like I have a girlfriend who just quit her, who, who just changed jobs. And that is so, I mean, that in itself is so courageous. So she has, you know, she's she's making less money. Like for anyone to, to make less money mm. is so courageous. Yeah. Everyone will say to you, you're crazy. You can't do that. She's my age. She's in her 40s. She has kids. She has everything we all have. Now, are they going to starve? No. Uh, They've added a couple of years onto their mortgage. They went to the bank. They reconfigured it. Are their kids going to go to school naked? No. (laughs) You know, like, as I always say to my kids, you know, there are families in India who live on a blanket. (laughs) Like, this is, we are crazy. We are just so, the standard of living that we think is necessary is crazy. You know, when I was a child, we had one TV, one car, all that. The standard of living we've come to accept as normal and essential is insane. And we are working ourselves to death to achieve it. And it's not necessary. Michelle, that is sensational advice. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So there you have it. Maybe a culture that pushes us to keep striving also pushes us to keep creating and bringing new ideas into the world. According to today's experts, it's up to us and our employers to find a way to keep the hustle going at a healthy rate. You don't have to visit a Buddhist temple or become a yogi just yet or ever. Building a practice that works for you is the key. Find a mindful routine. Take a closer look at your current definition of success and cut yourself a little slack. Thanks for joining us on this examination of hustle culture. That's it for this episode and for this topic. A big thank you to all our guests. And as always, more information on what we talked about today can be found in the show notes.